questions of the text. Because this story is about God, because it's a prophetic book of the Bible, what is it revealing about God? So we've, we've taken the text and we've looked to, to see and understand how God is revealing himself, not so much through what he said as, as what he did. In light of God's revelation, though, we're brought face-to-face with truths about ourselves. And so we have to ask the question in response, what is this? What does this reveal about us? There's always a distinction. There's always some, some place of, of uh, division there. And so we have to ask in light of that, what are we going to do in response? How are we going to respond to who God is and who we are? And all along, we've asked that first question and, and we've been answering it by looking at attributes or the traits, like his personality traits. Who is God? And we've seen his sovereignty. We've seen his glory. We've seen his grace. And we've seen his mercy. We've seen his great steadfast love for us. And we've seen that over and over again. And this week, like last week, though, we're not going to look so much at the traits as we are how he takes who he is, how all of who he is directs his mission, authors the message for the mission, and then enlists his messenger. But he does one more thing. And like last week, we we looked at it really from that perspective of a messenger. This week, we're going to look at it from the perspective of those who the mission has gone to get. Like, why did he start this mission to begin with? What is he doing? So this week, as we look to Jonah chapter 3, we'll start in verse 3. We're going to look at God relent when Nineveh repents. We'll start again in verse 3. We'll read through the end of the chapter. It says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now as you'll recall, this was Nineveh was was God's plan for Jonah. He was his messenger to Nineveh. He's like, you're going to go there. And Jonah disobeyed, ends up running from God, goes the opposite direction, climbs on a boat, ends up being thrown overboard into the sea and then swallowed by a whale or a fish, however you want to look at it. And then eventually the whale or the fish vomits him up onto the beach. And, And then God says again, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And so this time Jonah obeys. This is what we're seeing happen. Jonah gets up and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches the very message that God gave him to preach. Now, it wasn't a pleasant message. It wasn't like something that everybody's going to pay tickets, pay for tickets and go here, right? So nobody's going to pay a bunch of money to, to go listen to Jonah say, hey, God's going to destroy Nineveh. But that confrontational message is the message that God gave Jonah to go and preach. And so Jonah went and preached it. And Nineveh Surprisingly enough, Nineveh respond maybe differently than anyone would have expected. So we see in verse 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. I pointed it out last week. It's significant. They believed God. Jonah was the one doing the speaking. Jonah was the one out there in the street. Hey, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. But they believed God. Somehow, some way, in, in his preaching and in the entirety of the message, some how Nineveh knew that this wasn't Jonah, that it was God speaking. And so they believed God. It says, The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
The word reached the king of Nineveh. So this message that Jonah's out preaching reaches the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. That's not the typical actions of a king, right? I mean, when, you're, when your kingdom is being threatened, are you going to get up and climb off your throne and sit down in a pile of ashes? He sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and, pub, and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let man nor beast, herd nor flock, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is big stuff. You're not even to taste it. It's not, you don't even get to lick the lollipop. I mean, you don't get to enjoy anything of it. Don't even, don't even take a drop of water and put it on your tongue. And it's not just, it's not just certain, it's not like just the old folks got to do this. Not just the middle-aged folks. This is great and least. This is young and old. This is, this is important and this is unimportant. This is masters and slaves. This is, this is employers and employees. This is everybody in Nineveh. And not just the people, but all of the livestock and all of the animals. There's not a living creature, living being in Nineveh that they don't apply this to. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, he says in verse 8. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. You see, Nineveh believed God. I mean, how do we know they believed God? Well, first, the text says it. I mean, it's easy enough to believe. The Bible says it, right? So, oh, okay, they really believed. But how can you be certain they believed God? Because what they did followed suit with what they said they believed. Their actions fell into line with what they said they believed was true. They believed God. Who were they going to call out to? They were going to call out to God. Who knows? This is the, the rest of the decree. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He didn't even have a clue. The king and the nobles had no assurance that what they were about to do would provide them any relief. They couldn't be certain. Who knows? I mean, we're going to try this. We're going to fast, and we're going to mourn. We're going to put on sackcloth. I'm going to give up my throne. I'm going to sit under the authority of God. Who knows? He just might not kill us. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. It's pretty, pretty amazing, pretty powerful when you stop and think about it. Nineveh was a great city. I mean, the, the author says that it's like three days across it, a three days walk across it. And, and there's a lot of debate about what he meant by that. It, it, some people say that literally it's walking from one side of Nineveh to the other. But, but if that's what the author meant, then it's, 
we, we know how big Nineveh was because it's been found, and so there's been excavation done, and they found the walls of the city proper. So if it meant that, that it was going to take three days to cross Nineveh from one side to the other, then it, it had to mean that it's including the suburbs, right? So it's including Ozark and Willard and uh, Rogersville and Nixa and, and Stratford and whatever else is around us. So it includes all of the suburbs, it includes, it's, it's the metro area of Nineveh, if that's what he meant. Some people believe that it meant that, that it was going to take Jonah three days to, to go into the city and walk all over the cities preaching this message. I, there's a, actually a whole slew of ideas of what the author meant. But the reality is, is what we know is that it was a big and powerful, it was a great city well known around its area. It was the most powerful city of its time at one point. We, we don't know exactly when this book was written, but, but it's thought that in this point was one of, the, one of the points when Nineveh was at its greatest. And so, so here's Nineveh, this great city, powerful city. People feared it. They were known for bloodshed. They were known for violence. They were known for thieving and stealing. Taking wasn't what, what, what wasn't theirs. They were known for it. You can read in the prophet Nahum. Is, the whole book is, is just about Nahum prophesying against Nineveh and its coming destruction. Again, this is later, but it's the same kind of problem they were facing. And yet God saw what they did. He saw what they deserved. He saw what they deserved. He saw who they were. And he saw how they responded to his message. And he relented. And he didn't bring judgment. So day 40 comes. Who knows? Who knows? And day 41 comes. And they're still kicking. That is the act of a merciful and gracious God. Well, what do we see about God in this? What do we see? Well, just like last week, I think we see God ruling over his mission. I think we see God living in sovereignty over this mission of grace and mercy. God's mission belongs solely to Him. It belongs completely to Him. From start to finish, the decision to, to relent or not relent was His. The decision to send Jonah or not send Jonah was His. From start to finish, this mission belongs to Him. He doesn't need our cooperation or our permission. Nowhere in the text are we given a clue that Nineveh thought they were sinful people. Nowhere are we given the indication that they were seeking after God. God wasn't showing up because they were calling on Him. He was already there. He was already bringing judgment. He was already demonstrating that there was something wrong. He didn't even need Jonah. He used Jonah. He, he enlisted his messenger that, that Jonah might receive the blessing of being part of the mission, but at any moment, at any moment, God could have spoken out of heaven. God could have looked at them and said, 40 days, and I'm going to destroy you. He doesn't need us for the mission. The mission is His. It belongs completely to Him. He rules sovereignly 
over it. He rules sovereignly over the means of the mission. He rules sovereignly over enlisting messengers. He rules sovereignly over the message that's to be proclaimed. He rules sovereignly over whether mercy is given or not. But he does demand our response. He does demand our response. See, in the same way that God sovereignly rules over whether the mission goes or not, in the same way that God rules over whether he gives mercy or not, God rules over the way we receive the blessing of his mission. He rules that. He determines that. And he looks on us and he says, there is judgment coming. But there is a way. There is another way. So what do we find out about ourselves in looking at God's sovereign rule over his mission, in looking at God's sovereign determination of whether he gives grace or mercy? What, what does it say about us? We are completely subject to God. We are completely subject to him. We may not like his authority, and we may not even want to bow to his authority, but at some point his authority is going to demonstrate itself to us. He rules. He commands. And we're called to respond. See, this is the God that sits in heaven. This is the God that rules over all things. This is the God whose grace is available. That's difficult for us to hear, isn't it? I, I know it is. I don't like submitting any more than anybody else. In fact, I even said this week to somebody, I planted a church because I don't like submitting to leadership. So I'm just going to leave. And along the way, you know what God's shown me? I'm going to have to submit to somebody. He's put me in places to submit over and over and over again. That's not natural to me. I guarantee you that's not natural to me. And it's not natural to any of you either, is it? You see, it's our nature as a fallen people to rebel, to go our own way, to pursue our own things, to do what we want to do, to be our own gods. And we look at God in his sovereignty, and we look at his glory, and we look at his holiness and his perfection and his righteousness, and we're like, when I need you, you'll be there. I expect you to show up at my command. Now, I know, of course, nobody in this room would do that, right? I mean, you're a good church-going folks, so nobody in this room would do that. But by and large, that's who our culture is. I mean, when tragedy strikes, when we suddenly realize we can't do anything, when we suddenly realize that we are at a loss and we need some power, then that's when we call on him. 9-11-2001 is a perfect example of this. Church attendance swelled immediately. Well, that very week, the churches just blew up. They're having trouble finding places for people to sit. But that didn't last, did it? In fact, if you do a comparison and look at church attendance today in America versus church attendance in 2001, it's actually less today. It's shrinking. Now, when we need something, right? I mean, like when we 
need a job or when we need some circumstances to go just the right way and just need it, we, we realize that, well, we can't make it all come together. Well, that's when we ask him to fetch that stuff for us, right? I, I, I need it. God, you got to get that for me. Fetch. When we want more stuff, just because we're not satisfied with what we already have, right? I really, I really want a bigger house, God. I really want a higher paying job. I really want to be seen as successful. I really want people to like me. I want more friends. I want to be more popular. I want more money. I want more power. I want more people listening to what I say and doing what I say. Oh, nobody in here would think that, would they? I'm afraid in our nature we would. And by and large, that's the, that's the world we live in. See, it's not just us. It's everyone around us. But God is not subject to us. He doesn't answer to us. He is not rover to go and fetch for us. We are subject to Him. We answer to Him. And, and He does not respond to our proclamations, but we are to respond to His but he will respond to the proper response. So when he looked at Nineveh, this great and powerful city who was doing what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted, taking whatever they wanted, when they responded, when they repented, when they believed, he relented. So what do we do? So what are we going to do? How do we respond? The last week as we looked at this mission, I encourage you to respond from the perspective of Jonah to be the messenger, to arise and go this week. I want you to, 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 to stand in the place of Nineveh. Before we respond like Jonah and go, we must respond like Nineveh, believing God and repenting of our sin. The truth is, and, and I didn't, this dawned on me, and it, it, it's true. I should have thought about it earlier. Should have had a note for you. The truth is, is it's not just a moment that that happens, but we need that every day as we are responding like Jonah. Even once we're in the mission, once we're going, we need to be believing God and repenting of sin. It never stops until he comes back. Here's the thing, though. It's easy for me to say that. It's easy for me to use those words, and I can, talk, I can call you to belief and repentance all day long. But if we don't know what they mean, we don't really know what to do, do we? What does it mean, then, to believe in God? What are we to do? How do we believe? What does that mean? The Reformers pointed out three characteristics of believing God. Three traits, three, three pieces that make belief really belief, the kind of belief that God 
responds to. First, they said that you must have knowledge. You must know what God is saying. So in the, in, the, in the perspective of Nineveh, in this story, we see Jonah come in and we see him preaching and calling out that there's going to be judgment. And, and Nineveh hears that, hears that. They gain that knowledge. And what did they do with it? They agreed with it. That's the second piece. They, there has to be agreement. You have to not just hear it, but you've got to believe it's true. If I tell you that the sky is green... You have knowledge now that I'm an idiot because the sky is blue, right? So, so if I come to you and say the sky is green, that might give you some information, but that doesn't mean you have to agree with it. The idea here is that you not only receive the information, but you agree with the information. So the sky is blue. Can we all agree on that? You can talk back to me. It's okay. You don't have to be afraid. Yes, the sky is blue. We can all agree on that. And that's a small and just simple thing, of course. It's not a big deal. But, but here's the thing. If we stop there, if we stop in that place, what the Reformers pointed out when they, when they identified these three pieces of belief, what they pointed out was if we stop there, we're no different than the demons who knew who Jesus was, who would agree with his authority, but would in no way Submit to his authority. You see, we, we have to move from knowledge and agreement to trust. The Ninevites, they didn't just sit on this information. It's not like they just continued to act the way that they were continuing to act. It's, it's not like they, they just kept on going. They believed, they gained the knowledge, they agreed with the knowledge, and then they trusted it. And how do we know they trusted it that they actually became dependent upon it such that they acted in light of it. That is belief. That is the fullness of believing God. When our knowledge and our view of truth moves us to action, then we can say we believe. Before then, it's really uncertain. So let's just take, oh, we got a baptism class this week. So let's just take that as an example. Why does baptism matter in the life of a believer? Somebody who is trusting Jesus, why does baptism matter? If I'm already believing in Jesus and I'm already saved and I have already received his grace, why in the world do I need to get baptized? Because if you believe in him, you will live to obey him. Your life will reflect what you believe. And if you reject baptism, you're essentially saying he has no authority over me. There's no reason for me to do this. I'm going to go my own way. See, baptism is, is symbolic. It doesn't save us. But if we reject Jesus to the point that we will not follow his instruction, the very first step of obedience that he calls us to, if we will not do it, then we have to wonder, do we really believe he is who he says he is? Do we really believe that He is Lord? Do we really believe that He is Savior? The same could be said as, as believers, as, as Christian people. The same could be said for the things that we do on a daily basis. If I only ever spend time watching television, but don't ever pick up the Scriptures and read from them, or ever sit under the teaching of the Bible, if I never ever connect with the people of God, do I really 
believe. Now listen, I'm not saying that going to church or reading your Bible or praying is what saves you. But when you believe, when you have the knowledge, when you agree that it's true, and when you trust it, the life you live will reflect it. That's what we mean when we say we must believe God. He calls us to believe Him. That's exactly what happened in Nineveh. The Ninevites didn't just believe God, they they repented of their sin. Here's the thing. When we talk about repentance, and this is the difficulty of dealing with repentance, is because almost everybody in this room at some point or other has probably been told that repentance is just about the action of turning from sin. It's all about what you do. But that is not what the Bible demonstrates completely about repentance. Certainly there's a piece of there. There's a piece of it in turning from our sin. But, but repentance starts internally. It's about a changing of our mind. And so over the last several months, as I have struggled through this and tried to work it out, I have realized that, that I'm guilty of thinking of repentance in this way as well. And so I, I, just went on a, I just started studying and digging on it and looking at all the people I could and trying to understand it. And I came across a, a, a definition of this from Charles Spurgeon that I'd like to just share. and let, This, I think, defines repentance well. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin. You see here, it's a discovery of the evil of sin. So it's not first about the action, it's about the understanding. It's about gaining knowledge. Mourning that we have committed it. Agreeing that we're sinners. A, res, a, a resolution to forsake it you see the exact same things happening in repentance that you see happening in belief. We gain the understanding that it's evil, that there's sin. We mourn that we do it, and we resolve not to do it anymore. It is in fact, he says, it is in fact a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. See, repentance and belief, they began to sound so similar that I began to see and understand that, that when Jesus calls us to repentance or when Jesus calls us to believe, when, when the apostles would say, repent and be baptized, or, or they would say, believe for forgiveness, that they're essentially saying the same thing. That they're truly the same thing. And then I came across Sinclair Ferguson, who is an amazing pastor, and he says this. He says, we cannot separate turning from sin and repentance and coming to Christ in faith. We cannot separate them. They describe the same person in the same action, but from different perspectives. In one instance, repentance, we're talking about repentance first. In one instance, the person is viewed in relation to sin. In the other, this is faith, in the other instance, the person is viewed in relation to the Lord Jesus. But the individual who trusts in Christ simultaneously turns away from sin. In believing, he repents, and in repenting, he believes. And see, the truth is, is that these two things, believing and repenting, are two sides of the same coin. 
And when you're talking about your sin, you're called to believe that it is sinful. You're called to believe that it is not acceptable to God. You're called to believe that it is not allowable. And when you trust that, when you believe that about your sin, it will lead you away from sin. But on the other side of the coin, you're called to believe that Jesus is God, that He is your Savior, that He is your hope, that He is the answer. And when you take that knowledge, and when you agree with that knowledge, and when you trust that knowledge, it will lead you away from sin to Him. Brothers and sisters, the only acceptable response is believing and repenting. Before we can ever go like Jonah, we must believe and repent. We have to. Otherwise, we're like a rich young ruler that went up to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? Well, it says don't, don't murder anybody, you know. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's one we can all agree on. We shouldn't be killing people, right? Don't, don't have idols. Okay, God's supposed to be first. Well, we can agree on that. This guy's like, I've done this all. Jesus, I've, I've done it. I've measured up. Look, I've proved myself. And Jesus says one more thing. Go and sell everything. Give it to the poor. You see, this is a guy who grew up in church, who was doing all he was supposed to do, but didn't really believe God was the answer. He really believed in his wealth. And when Jesus told him to go and sell everything, he dropped his head, and he turned around discouraged and walked away because he couldn't let it go. We can be in church we can do all of these things. We can, we, can, we can measure up in our own imaginations. We can serve God. But if we aren't first believing and repenting, we are walking in religion and not faith. Brothers and sisters, we need to believe and repent. Believe in Jesus. Repent of our sins. Repenting and believing are the same process wherein we quit believing lies and we begin believing truth. So, now that we understand that, now that we have a concept of that, what must we believe? We've got to believe God. We've got to believe what God says about himself and what God says about what about us, what God tells us when He did, what we deserve and why we deserve it. When God says you're a sinner, no, that's not pleasant to hear. No, it's difficult to listen to. I mean, it is, it's, 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 it's not fun to be confronted with your failures. I mean, there's not many of us running off to hear somebody tell us how we failed. But we must believe it. We must trust that we have nothing to offer here. And for some of you, for some of you sitting in this room, you have never done that. You need to believe God. You are a sinner and doomed to destruction. You must believe God. And for some of you, 
your longtime believers who in some way think you've attained a position before him. It's only by grace you're where you are. It's only by his mercy that you persevere. It's only by his gift that you are granted to believe. Believe God when he tells you what you deserve and why you deserve it. Believe God when he offers you salvation instead of judgment. The Ninevites had no idea. They had no assurance. They had no certainty. We're going to do this, but and, and who knows? Maybe, maybe, just maybe God will relent. Maybe he won't destroy us. He's standing on this side of the cross, on history's side of the cross. We have all kinds of assurance. We have all kinds of hope. Believe God when he says you don't have to be judged. You don't have to be condemned. You don't have to go off into eternity without him. You don't have to be separate. He has made a way and his name is Jesus. Oh, what, what would it be if we, like the Ninevites, would recognize that God is free to do whatever he wants? What would it be if we, like the Ninevites, would recognize that we are completely at his mercy, that he is the one who says grace or no grace? He is the one who says mercy or no mercy. What would it be if we really believed that? What if we believe that completely and fully? What if we, like the Ninevites, would recognize that we deserve nothing from him but have so much hope because of him? Yeah, I, I think, I think that if we believe this about this God, we would be repenting of all of our sin. We would be believing that it is evil, it is detestable in his sight, that it is worthless for us, that it is hopeless for us, and then it brings what it deserves. You see, along with believing, we must repent. We must quit believing the lies that lead us to sin and trust the truth that leads us to obedience. Trust those things that lead us to worship. Trust those things that lead us to him and deny those things that lead away from him. And for many of us, Long-time believers, long-time repenters. But it doesn't stop. That's the role of a Christian. That's the walk of the Christian life. Believe and repent. Believe and repent. Martin Luther, as he wrote those 95 theses, that famous, that famous 95 thesis that he nailed to the Wittenberg door and and by some accounts sparked the Protestant Reformation. I mean, that's what everybody credits the beginning of the Reformation as. The very first one. He says that when Jesus called us to repent, he meant that all of a believer's life was to be one of repentance. All of a believer's life. Believer. One who's believing in Christ. All of his life, her life, is to be of repentance every step of the way 
rooting out the lies and trusting the truth, rooting up the lies and calling them what they are and replacing them with the truth. What lies do we believe? What lies do we seek satisfaction in? What lies do we seek comfort in? Oh, if that person likes me, if that person approves of me, if that person just smiles at me, if that person gives me what I want, then I'll be happy. I know this one. I struggle with this one. I am an approval junkie. I long for the approval of people. In my flesh, I long for it. And so I know, I know what happens here. I know how desperate we get. You see, because if, if that person won't do it, if, or if that person won't do it, then I'll turn to this person. And, and, and pretty soon, I don't care even whether they mean it. And I don't care of the source. I don't, I don't care how desperately, de- I, I don't care what that person is. Just as long as I get some approval. Totally forgotten the source. Totally denied that that person is worse off than I am just as long as they make me feel good. That is a lie. The truth is that only Jesus can fill our souls with joy. Only the grace of God and the, and the provision of your Creator can fill you full to the point that you are bubbling over with joy. It is a lie that if you have enough money in the bank, Enough money to last six months without a job or even a year. It is a lie that if you save enough for retirement that you will be safe and secure. That is a lie. Only Jesus can provide your security. You see, money, it might fix you temporarily. And it might even be there for the moment you need it. But what's going to happen when you die? It'll fall flat. You can't take it with you. But Jesus can make you secure, not just then, but also now. It is a lie. It is a lie to think that that if, if I just do, if everyone would just do what I say, if everyone would follow my plan, if everyone would just do what I think they should do, then life would be peaceful. Man, we don't have that kind of power. We don't have that kind of control. But Jesus does. He's been given all authority. All of it. Every bit of it. And he has the power. So not only does he have authority, but he is able. So that even as our circumstances crumble, we can know the peace that passes understanding as we look to him. Brothers and sisters, we have to quit believing these lies and keep looking for truth, trusting truth, acting on, depending on, living by truth. So what lies are you believing? What what does God's word prove about those lies? How are you replacing one with the other? What are you going to believe? What do you need to believe? And what do you need to repent of? This was based on the songs that we sung this morning, based on those words that we've already sung. 
But I, I realized I had to sing them differently. I wish I could say it was true that my whole heart went after Jesus always. That his was the only name I sang. I wish it were true that I always believed that he is a good, good father. Most of the time I do. But a lot of times I struggle with that. Why do I experience what I experience? Why do you let me suffer? Why don't you give me what I want? Because I'm a good, good father. That's his answer. Sometimes I struggle believing that I am loved by him. So I began to pray them. When we sang the second service, I prayed them. God, will you make these true of me? That I would sing these, not with a split mind, but that I would pray these from my heart and you would work it out that I might believe it and that I might repent of those lies that take its place. We're about to sing a song that says Jesus is better. Will you believe it? What do you need to repent of so that you might believe it? Let's pray.